0: Hello and welcome to Technocast, a podcast series showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. This week we have the first episode of our Work, Labour and Protest series with our very own Izzy Sykes. Izzy is an interdisciplinary PhD student at Brunel University London, exploring media representations and lived experiences of working class women's unpaid domestic labour in the UK. I'll leave you now to enjoy Izzy's paper and I'll be back later to have a chat with Izzy about her research.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Isabel, and I'm in my second year of my Techni-funded PhD at Brunel University. Usually I'm one of your Technicast hosts, but today I'm happy to be on the other side of the podcast, sharing my research with you. In this paper, I'll be introducing you to my project, which compares media representations of British working-class women's unpaid domestic work to lived experiences of this work using a mixed-methods approach, which combines textual analysis with text-in-action methods and interviews. So domestic labour comprises the tasks involved in running a household, including shopping, budgeting, cleaning and cooking. It's also often intertwined with the work of caring for children or other dependents in the home. Such work forms part of a wider network of social reproduction labour which consists, according to laszlo and Brenner, of the activities and attitudes, behaviours and emotions, responsibilities and relationships directly involved in the maintenance of life on a daily basis and intergenerationally. These are the activities that enable the worker to go to work, that reproduce our workforce, and therefore facilitate the continued functioning of capitalist society. This work has historically been, and continues to be, overtly gendered, with women carrying out the vast majority of social reproduction labour in countries across the globe, including the UK. Discussions surrounding domestic labour have been brought to the fore in recent years by events such as the COVID-19 pandemic and the cost-of-living crisis, as home working policies and rising living costs have placed greater attention on the time, costs and labour involved in running a household and caring for those within it. Coupled with longer-term trends, such as the impact of the 2008 financial crash, subsequent government austerity and the dismantling of welfare provision, Western states like the UK are facing what Nancy Fraser calls a crisis of care, in which the unpaid labour that sustains capitalist states is consistently undermined and undervalued, even while it grows ever more visible and vital. This crisis of care has also highlighted the fact that social reproduction labour is explicitly classed as well as gendered. Feminist sociologists such as Tracy Jensen, Sarah de Benedictus, Kim Allen and Imogen Tyler have shown how austerity measures introduced by UK conservative governments following the financial crash have hit working-class women the hardest. Within the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, research has found that working-class women were left bearing the brunt of increased unpaid workloads, being less likely to benefit from flexible working policies and furlough schemes than middle-class women or men. Moreover, the latest reports showing the impact of the cost-of-living crisis reveal that women in low-paid work and women with caring responsibilities have been among the worst affected by escalating living costs in the UK. The household sits at the apex of these crises. From budgeting for a family amid benefits cuts, to home-educating children in lockdown, to choosing between heating and eating as living costs rise, the crisis of care has significant consequences for the unpaid labour carried out every day by working class women in their homes. As feminist media scholars, including those I mentioned previously, have demonstrated, the media plays a vital role in producing, reflecting, and contesting class and gendered identities. As such, it is a key site for examining how working class women are viewed in UK society and how their unpaid labour is perceived. For example, Scholars such as Jensen, Tyler and the others I mentioned previously have detailed how television and news media worked in tandem to fuel public anxieties surrounding the welfare state and to garner support for punitive austerity measures introduced in the years following the financial crash. Depictions of so-called benefit brood families on poverty-porn television shows such as Benefit Street and stereotypes of working-class femininity popularised by comedy characters such as Little Britain's Vicky Pollard, fueled pervasive media narratives of working-class women as benefit scroungers, raising work-shy children and draining the state by claiming benefits. These narratives were mobilised by David Cameron's government to present working-class women, and single mothers especially, as responsible for Britain's so-called broken society and were used to justify punitive austerity policies directed at dismantling the welfare state. For example, in David Cameron's fight-back speech following the 2011 riots, he makes the bizarre suggestion that single motherhood was to blame for the violence, stating, I don't doubt that many of the rioters out last week have no father at home. Perhaps they come from one of the neighbourhoods, where it is standard for children to have a mum and not a dad, where it's normal for young men to grow up without a male role model, looking to the streets for their father figures, filled up with rage and anger. The next year, the Troubled Families programme was launched, targeting the working-class single mothers who were presented as the cause of Britain's so-called moral crisis and sanctioning those who did not engage with its interventions. While the Troubled Families Programme has recently been rebranded as the Supporting Families Programme, the legacy of these years lives on today in the right-wing media's preoccupation with benefits claimants and in political discourse pitting working people against the so-called workless. These narratives continue to be reflected in punishing anti-welfare policies, not least the cuts to benefits under the shift to universal credit and the punitive two-child benefit cap that render the work of maintaining a home and raising a family increasingly difficult for working-class women. Mainstream media and government policy thus continue to work in tandem to denigrate working-class women and disavow their labour. Set against the reality of the crisis of care, depictions of domesticity and domestic work on social media present a starkly different narrative. From the immaculate homes of cleanfluencers like Mrs. Hinch, to Khloe Kardashian's vast uniform pantry shelves, to cathartic clean talk content, social media platforms are replete with images of what Casey and Littler call a polished and glamorous domestic life. My research focuses on TikTok, an app whose exponential growth during the lockdown phases of the pandemic has given it a unique relationship to the domestic space. Videos are largely filmed within the home, often focusing on the mundane routines of everyday domestic life, exemplified by the ever-popular day-in-the-life vlogs and trends such as hashtag my5to9. The most popular videos under these trends feature young women who epitomise conventional Western beauty standards, carrying out various cleaning and domestic labour tasks, From methodically decanting their shopping into glass containers, to organising bathroom cabinets, to stacking identical Tupperware in expansive pantries. Each action is carried out methodically, with slow precision, often to a backdrop of ambient music. These domestic routines exude ease, presented as therapeutic and aesthetically pleasing for both the creator and the viewer. As Casey and Littler have suggested, the increasing popularity of these videos in recent years might reflect a desire to assert order and control over one's personal space in times of economic and political upheaval. Nonetheless, there is something fundamentally artificial and a little unsettling about these images of romantic domesticity centred on ease and catharsis. As we watch Mrs. Hinch's kitchen miraculously clean itself with the click of her fingers, or follow an influencer as she prepares her perfectly balanced meal-prep lunches for the week ahead, the dirty, arduous and time-consuming reality of domestic work is conspicuous in its absence. Such idealised and privileged images of domestic bliss belie the demanding reality of running a household that is the reality for many women particularly those who live at the sharp end of persistent austerity and rising living costs. As such, they exemplify and feed into society's class disavowal of domestic labour. What's more, a growing sector of this content links these idealised images of domesticity to regressive rhetoric surrounding naturalised gender roles, exemplified by the tradwife community an abbreviation of traditional wife, a tradwife is a woman who believes that feminism has been preventing women from performing their natural gender roles as homemakers. As such, tradwives advocate for a return to a heteronormative male breadwinner model of domesticity, in which the husband goes out to work, and the wife dedicates her life to homemaking and caring for her husband and children. Tradwife creators on TikTok centre domestic labour and the aesthetics of homemaking on their accounts. They show themselves washing clothes, cooking for their husbands, decorating their homes, and some even choose to dress in the style of a 1950s housewife. While tradwifism has been associated with religious extremism and alt-right politics, in the US in particular, Megan Zahey has pointed out that these sinister aspects of the community often slip under the radar for the general TikTok user because of the transformation of this rhetoric into light-hearted trends that quickly go viral with the help of TikTok's algorithmic format. For example, one instance of this is the stay-at-home girlfriend TikTok trend, which features mostly white, young, childless women who choose not to work dedicating their days to homemaking for their partners. Their videos feature aesthetic, soothing scenes of home organisation, interspersed with workout classes, journaling, high-end shopping and elaborate skincare rituals. Their imagery is of extreme financial privilege, disseminating a narrative of a luxurious and laid-back day-to-day domestic life, achieved through the reliance upon the income of a male partner. Tradwifism and the stay at home girlfriend trend present feminine domesticity as a desirable, natural alternative to the grind of the neoliberal labour market, and can be understood, I argue, as a backlash to a toxic overwork culture and the girl boss style neoliberal feminism that perpetuates it. As the writer Sophie Lewis points out in her brilliant essay on tradwives, only a fool would underestimate the sexiness for women of being delivered from the double shift. Lewis also makes the crucial point that this idealised notion that women can simply decide to reject paid work and retreat into the home rests on a false discourse of choice. Choosing to live this idyllic fantasy of domestic femininity denies the socio-economic reality for most women who have no option but to juggle paid work with an increasing load of unpaid domestic labour. Therefore, the configuration of domesticity as a feminine domain of freedom and privilege within the tradwife aesthetic, in addition to championing regressive gender stereotypes, denies the hard graft of social reproduction labour and disregards the lived realities of working-class women. There are creators on TikTok who critique these romanticised narratives of domestic life, for example, by bringing awareness to the daily realities of domestic labour by documenting their lived experiences of this work. Some of these creators are openly critical of the UK government for their lack of support for working-class families. Some discuss their personal experiences of struggling to get by on benefits payments or using food banks, and some give advice to other women and parents about how to cope with the cost-of-living crisis including sharing tips for shopping cheaply and meal planning on a budget. Such content is evidence of a level of resistance to the sanitised portrayals of domesticity that dominate social media, and that undermine the harsh daily realities of domestic and care work for working-class women. It also serves to disrupt and deny narrow, derogatory narratives of working-class womanhood, presented in the mainstream media and in widespread political discourse. Despite these narratives of resistance, depictions of romanticised domesticity are ever more pervasive on social media, and they raise concerning questions surrounding the future of feminism, particularly for the younger generation, and especially in the case of the tradwife community, they add fuel to widespread reactionary views surrounding gender roles. Going forward, then, in order to fully understand the crisis of care, progress in the fight against gendered labour exploitation, and imagine the ways in which we might reorganise, revalue and resist work, feminism must foreground the voices of working-class women as those who carry out the invisible labour that sustains our society. I hope that by placing working-class women's lived experiences at its centre, my project can offer some beneficial new insights into this ongoing struggle. Thank you for listening. I'm currently in the process of recruiting interview participants for the next stage of my research. If you're over the age of 18, you identify as a working-class woman and you live with at least one other person, which includes children. I'd like to speak to you about domestic work. To get involved, please email isabel.sykes at brunel.ac.uk That's isabel.sykes at brunel.ac.uk Thank you. Hey Izzy, how's it going? Hello, yeah I'm good thank you, how are you? Yeah I'm fine,
0: thank you for doing the recording, thank you for being on the other side of the podcast this week. So I guess my first question is how did this project come about, how did you get into researching this?
1: Um, It came from a few different places really. Um, I've always been into like interdisciplinary research so it kind of comes out of like a combination of my past studies in English literature history mm-hmm. and I guess like sociology as well but that's always been like informal until now it's not been my subject till the PhD so basically like the lowdown of, of how it um how kind of my studies led to this is um starts on my undergrad degree which I did in English and history and I did my dissertation on like 19th century working class women's writing factory girl poetry specifically and the context for that was that in the industrial period in the UK, there was like a really interesting discussion around something called the 10 hours bill in the 1830s, which was a bill to introduce a 10 hour limit for women and children working in textile mills and factories. And the reason that bill was interesting was because it created a consensus across the political spectrum that there needed to be a limit on the amount of hours working class women spent out of their houses working because everyone was worried about what that would mean for all the unpaid labor that needed doing at home so there was like a widespread moral panic about the idea that society might collapse without the unpaid care and domestic labor of working class women if they all went out to work and like early feminists in this period sort of mobilized this societal panic to highlight the value of women's unpaid work and to argue for women to be treated as like autonomous human beings who were integral to society and so my project looked at the role of working class women in that kind of movement using their writing as like lens and then from there I did a contemporary literature masters where I continued thinking about the relationship between like class work and feminism but in a contemporary context and I got interested in how neoliberalism has like changed our relationship with work as a society um, and the kind of rise of like a toxic overwork culture and the sort of dissolution of boundaries between work and leisure and the gender dimensions of that so that was like my master's so it kind of grew out of a combination of both of those really I've always been interested in like different kinds of work the value of work and our relationship to work and up until now I've sort of used literature as a lens to explore that but moving into the PhD I kind of wanted to go directly to the source really and speak to like working class women themselves about their relationships with work
0: yeah it's interesting yeah it feels kind of organic i guess in the way that it's kind of led you to this point point. and just because i feel like this can be a kind of contentious thing maybe especially in the UK I was wondering how you're defining working class in your current research so
1: this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently as I've been like writing my lit review and kind of setting out my sort of theoretical framework and things and class as like a sociological term and as a marker of identity has kind of come in and out of fashion a bit in academia and as you say it can be quite a emotional and fraught subject in general So in arguing for its continued relevance, really, as a way to talk about, like, lived experience, I'm following, like, a group of feminist sociologists um, who are headed by an academic called Beverly Skeggs. Big up, Beverly Skeggs. In the 90s, she kind of, um, her and her crew, sort of revived class um, as, like, an academic tool, as a sociological tool, basically, by talking about it not as like a fixed economic category that's imposed on you based on what kind of job you have, but more like a process that's informed and shaped by social and cultural factors. And obviously, I mean, I'm never far away from like a Marxist definition of class because a big part of my project centres on like social reproduction theory. But while I do think work is an important aspect of somebody's class identity, I don't think a purely economic definition of class is the whole picture and and something that Beverly Skegg's work within working-class communities has revealed is that class is still like an enduring part of how people identify and it still features in our language in popular culture and has an important influence on people's kind of values but it's not like a simple category it's more like a shifting process and Mm. in that way people's subjective viewpoints are really key to understanding how class is experienced in the UK, I think. Um, Mm. So with that in mind, in my project, I'm I'm choosing to recruit interview participants based on their self-identification as working class. And then I'm going to ask them why they identify as working class, like in the interviews and kind of have a chat about that. Because I mean, one way, one reason for that is to acknowledge class as kind of a complex process. It also allows me to be Like mindful of the power relations I think between myself as the researcher and the interviewees because I don't want to just go in imposing kind of arbitrary categories on people based on you know what job they have or what their parents do and things like that like I think that allowing people to talk about how they experience class maybe opens up the discussion a bit more. That's really interesting
0: when I was listening to your paper I was and when you've spoken about it before I've always been interested in the TikTok element of it so I was wondering what it's like doing research that focuses on TikTok. So are there any particular difficulties that come with it? How
1: has it affected your TikTok algorithm? It's interesting. It's it's exciting. Um the TikTok element kind of just came it wasn't meant to be really included in it, but I kind of got into a whole of like trad wives and kind of the weird sort of domestic things that are going on in TikTok and it's also it's like a new field of study and it's interesting keeping up with all the stuff that's coming out that's being published all the time and it's definitely the thing that people want to ask me about like at conferences and stuff which it's like a fruitful area of scholarship to be in <laughs> and I think challenges wise like one of the main obvious ones is that everything like changes so fast I think with social media sort of research in general but TikTok in particular as soon as you get a grip on a kind of cultural phenomenon or a moment it's like already going and like I'm trying to write an article at the minute about like trad wives and the stay-at-home girlfriend kind of trend on TikTok and even as I'm writing it I'm aware like whenever it does come out it's kind of all old news so I mean that's why I like doing podcasts and stuff is good because you get to talk about the research as it's happening and algorithm wise I've I mean I've made a whole separate account because it's too much there were so many so many housewives on my TikTok and like you know it's enough you know the work-life balance <laughs> made a new account I mean another challenge is like developing any kind of methodology with TikTok because no one really knows how the algorithm works and like So everyone's methodology is sort of by nature really kind of bespoke to them because it's only, Mm. you know, you can only see what the app is showing you and everyone gets a different perspective on what is like trending and what's popular and stuff really. I think it's doing interesting things in like media methodology and I'm glad to be like a part of that. Is it
0: difficult to write about like in terms of trying to pin down that methodology?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, that's something I'm trying to do at the minute is like try and sort of plan Um, slash write my methodology and Mm -hmm. yeah you kind of find yourself writing things like I watched 100 videos under the hashtag stay at home girlfriend and then I you know started to think about themes that link them together and then I did this and it feels very kind of I guess like data-based and like uh, scientific in a way that I'm really not used to because I'm used to just kind of Mm -hmm. getting really into the nitty-gritty of like language and you know you've usually got like a text right there definitely a whole different ball game in terms of working with data that I'm not used to I generally try and stay far away from like tables and graphs and things (laughs) so it's a new it's a new skill yeah
0: and I was wondering how paid influencing comes into this for example like the fact that clean influencers are not only presenting these kind of idealized and privileged images of domestic labor that's often like unpaid labor for a lot of working class women, but they might also be getting paid or sponsored to do that. I was wondering about that kind of tension.
1: Yeah, I'm really I'm really glad that you've asked that because that is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I mean the short answer is like I'm still kind of mulling it over. But yeah, I mean it's a really interesting phenomenon, like especially in the Tradwife community where kind of espouse this ideal of being a homemaker and of doing that completely out of love and it's not work their husband is earning all the money but at the same time they're making brand deals they're advertising products like Mm -hmm. creating editing and producing like all this content like they are working Being being a housewife like per se has never been detached from like the labor market and the economy and my work on housework like even back in the 19th century is taught me that you know housewives are always integral to driving consumer trends and mm-hmm. working from home like whether that's clothes mending or craft work or like nowadays being an influencer or running a business out of your home has never been unusual in the sort of housewife industry but what's funny about like tradwives specifically is that they seem very keen to hold up this illusion that nothing they're doing is mm-hmm. work and they create this image of kind of effortlessly sort of drifting around in domestic bliss when actually they're monetizing their domestic labour, they're creating a brand and they have a financially lucrative platform. I mean, like, is this tradwife lifestyle what, you know, Sylvia Federici had in mind in the wages for housework movement? Probably not. But I think there's definitely something to unpack in there with relation to what it means to get paid for the kind of work that is generally gendered unpaid work for sure so yeah I'm glad that you brought it up because that's definitely been like on my mind as I've been going into the TikTok stuff.
0: Yeah I I guess it's it's weird because it's it's like the performance of this labour is what's getting you paid for it. So far in your research have you seen any interesting differences in the media portrayal or Lack thereof of different domestic activities. So, kind of specifically, do all types of domestic labor get aestheticized in similar ways, or does the work involved in like caring for children get represented differently to the work involved in cleaning or cooking?
1: Yeah, in the in the stay-at-home girlfriend content that I've been looking at recently for this article that I'm trying to write, there's kind of a complete absence of care work, really, because I think these kind of creators on TikTok, the stay-at-home girlfriend rather than trad wives tend to be younger they're kind of like gen z trad wives in training and a lot of them don't have children yet so their content tends to focus on sort of cooking cleaning shopping and domestic labor in these trends is always presented as like very aesthetically pleasing everyone has kind of you know loads of time to be decanting their shopping into Tupperware. It's a therapeutic activity for them. It's part of their kind of self-care regime to wipe the counters and reorganize the cereals and things. Like nothing they ever do is dirty in the first place, basically. Like everything they wipe is already immaculate. And also I think like specific domestic tasks, like decanting, organizing, packing and unpacking lends itself well to like ASMR content, which is really popular on TikTok as well. So I definitely see a lot more of that, particularly among younger sort of creators who are into that and even with like the creators who I mentioned in my talk who show a kind of unfiltered view of domestic labour and care work who are sort of trying to counteract like clean and trad wife narratives even for them like cleaning and tidying and organising is often still represented as the sort of cathartic soothing activity that they do by themselves like when the kids have gone to school and the house is quiet There's definitely a romanticised element, I think, to domestic work, like across the board. And I think it does come down partly to what two people I mentioned in the talk, Casey and Littler, say is like a need to have sort of control and order in a kind of chaotic environment. So I think, yeah, definitely, definitely the sort of aesthetic aspects of housework are prioritised on, on social media for sure. And you never see the kind of the messy the dirty sort of underneath of that kind of work.
0: yeah Uh, but I always find it interesting there's this guy that I follow on Instagram he's always doing like Sunday resets or like Mm -hmm. unpacking like his new vacuum cleaner and like vacuuming or whatever and there's always like a combination in the comments of like people who are like oh this has really like made my day like it's motivated me to do work and stuff and then it's other people who are like this isn't healthy (laughs) and I find it interesting like the I guess people end up on those pages because the algorithm's showing them stuff. But I don't know, like, there's, like, weird resistance. And I guess this is true of any social media trend, but, like, resistance in the comments to, like, this unrealistic or maybe unrealistic to them.
1: Yeah, and I do think TikTok in particular lends itself to sort of, like, dialogue and debate on the platform in a way that other social media platforms don't necessarily because of the kind of functions like stitching and duetting like people can literally you know respond to sort of live react to other people's content so I I do find that um trends tend to become a lot more kind of like contentious and spark debate um and a lot of that is a lot more kind of visual like people showing their own sort of lived experiences and like realities right next to one another in a way that's like a little bit different to um Twitter thread or um you know comments on an Instagram post I think I think there's something particular about TikTok that sparks those sort of debates
0: yeah that's really interesting that's a good point you spoke in your paper about media representations of working class families so for example like poverty porn TV shows and stereotypical representations of working class women and I was thinking do you think it's become less acceptable now to target or laugh at working class women? in TV representations or is it just less
1: over now but it still still happens i feel like i have a lot to say on this again so <laughs> um okay so i think that the way working class women and their work have been represented in the media has definitely changed in recent years i think with regards to like the poverty porn television shows or factual welfare television shows as the like proper name is I think they they did come out of a very specific moment in the UK, um, like following the financial crash in 2008. And they really kind of exemplify that austerity era because you got an explosion of these programmes like Channel 4's Benefit Street and Britain's Benefit Tenants. And then on Channel 5, you had like Life on the Dull and We Pay All Your Benefits. Like these shows, I think, are really symptomatic of anxieties surrounding public spending and welfare and like ideas of public duty and citizenship that are specific to that time in a lot of ways and I think with regards to now in this kind of socio-political moment over like a decade into austerity now this connection between like media and politics I think is just wearing a different hat really like you don't, you might not necessarily get shows like Benefit Street sort of being referenced in PMQs as you did back then. And you might get like less overtly sort of classist language, like scroungers and chavs in like the mainstream press, just openly, depending on like what you read of. But we do still have like instances of, you know, politicians blaming structural inequality on the choices of individual working class people and trying to say that supposed working class idleness is the reason for the crippling poverty people are facing. And with regards to the media's treatment of working class women in recent years, that's definitely been very interesting. For example, if you look at how the mainstream press kind of celebrated nurses and carers, um, which are both professions where working class women are a significant proportion of the workforce, um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, linked with initiatives like Clap for Carers, just like looking at that you'd think working class women were now coming off pretty well in terms of how society are sort of narrating them and representing them and their work but then you have to set that in the context of nurses going on strike over abysmal pay and working conditions and the fact that working class women suffered immensely during lockdown from lack of flexible working opportunities and mounting care responsibilities and The fact that women carers and women in low paid work and asylum seeking women are currently like among the worst societal groups affected by the cost of living crisis. Set against that, clap for carers means absolutely nothing in the face of those realities, obviously. So I think the bottom line is with regards to today, working class women's work is more visible in the media. And I think that visibility is making the need to address its exploitation more obvious but I don't think the way that that work is valued in society and more importantly how the government support and compensate that work has improved really and that's why you know we're in this kind of crisis point I feel like that's a very pessimistic note but that is the that's
0: that's yeah I mean
1: guys so I guess it,
0: it's kind of more maybe insidious now. There's less maybe acceptability for using words like scroungers and like really overtly like going for people who are on benefits. But yeah, this government still does. How does that connect maybe to the work you're doing now? How does it connect back and to the representations that you're seeing of working class
1: women's unpaid domestic labour now? So I think in terms of the representation I'm seeing on platforms like TikTok and stuff I think that prioritizing people's sort of subjective lived experiences and people's actual realities is becoming more possible and visible because accounts that are kind of like critical of the way that working class people are treated in society are critical of government lack of support for working class women and stuff are Reaching people, people can actually get out there like their lived experiences and on a lot of different platforms now and sort of really challenge like dominant media narratives. It's not just as if now the only narrative that we get of working class people is from kind of the mainstream press and like TV programs. I think user generated media platforms, for better or for worse, do generate a lot more perspectives and they're allowing space for people to challenge and resist narratives that you know working class women are not contributing to society or people who don't have jobs are sat at home doing nothing or you know yeah a mum who has loads of kids has made bad choices and that's why she's poor those kinds of narratives I think can be challenged by listening to people's actual experiences and prioritizing the voices of people who are actually like affected by events like the cost of living crisis prioritizing their experiences in finding our solutions to it and i mean i'm hoping that like by interviewing working class women speaking to them putting their voices at like the center of my project i guess i'm hoping to be involved in that discussion in terms of just listening like challenging dominant narratives and prioritizing sort of subjective viewpoints and yeah just starting to like really build a different picture of what we expect work to look like in this society and what work we should value and how it should be compensated. I mean, something I'm definitely interested in is like ideas of like anti-work and post-work. Someone like Sophie Lewis, for example, who's a writer who I really love, talks a lot about publishing the family as a kind of like patriarchal structure, as a basis for dealing with the exploitation of unpaid reproductive and like socially reproductive labour. I really enjoy reading like work by like Xenofeminist thinkers, if you read like the Xenofeminist manifesto, which again is like, just like moving beyond the work of reproducing and raising children that has always fallen to women and thinking about ways that societies can completely reorganize that labor um, to separate the cycle of exploitation. So it is definitely a lot of like big things um, and I'm not like pretending to be addressing them, but I'm enjoying like, I like the big thinking Uh, kind of work I like reading it and I like being part of those kind of discussions I think it is it can be like overwhelming and yeah yeah but in a good way
0: yeah no I I get that I do think we're living in a time where people are willing to think more radically about work and about yeah family and how those things are organized and what we're willing to accept or deal with now so I think it's an interesting time to be having the conversations hopefully putting them into some kind of action is there anything else you want to say Izzy?
1: Just that at the minute I am trying to start my fieldwork. I said this at the end of my paper actually cheeky little shout out but I'm trying to recruit interview participants so if anyone does identify as a working class woman And all the criteria is, yeah, you identify as a working class woman, you're over the age of 18 and live with at least one other person because it's about the kind of split of unpaid work. So that's quite difficult if it's just you and you'd like to talk to me about domestic work. Very low key. I'm very friendly. I think it would be a good time. But yeah, anyone who would like to be involved in the study, please, please do get in touch with me because, yeah, I'm trying to put I'm trying to put people's voices at the Of this project and that would be very hard without any voices to centre but other than that I think that's it I think these questions give me a lot to think about so I'm really really grateful for your excellent questions thank you very much for doing the paper Izzy and thank you for talking to me about it you're very welcome it's been lovely
0: thanks again to Izzy for her excellent contribution to our work labour and protest theme and thank you for taking the time to listen If you'd like to get involved in creating an episode with us please do drop us an email at the address in our bio. You can also find us on Twitter at Technicast and on Instagram at Technipodcast. Keep your eyes and ears out for our upcoming episodes and we'll see you soon.